thing for us to be afraid of, isn't there? Uh, I think that we, I think we find that fear is a very familiar place. Uh, sometimes that fear sits right on the surface. It can be quite debilitating for us. Um, other times it kind of sits there in the shadows and maybe it just creeps out. Maybe the times when we're alone, maybe in the middle of the night, uh, it comes upon us. Uh, that thing that we dread happening. Uh, that thing we feel that it would, it would kind of snap us like a twig if that thing were to happen. Or sometimes it's the many things, all the what ifs. What if this, and then this, and then this. And we just don't know, do we? That's where fear really twists the knife for us. Oh, we don't know. Oh, the, the what might be, the, the what might just be lurking in the shadows ready to pounce and destroy. Health fears. Family fears, money fears, work fears, state of the world fears, safety fears, spiritual fears, the, the I just don't think I'm going to make it fears. Now, there's always something to be afraid of. Um, do you know what gets rid of fear? As C.S. Lewis, with all of his great wisdom, suggested a list of things that might get rid of our fear. This is what he said. Ignorance, alcohol, passions, presumptions, and stupidity. He said those are things that might get rid of our fear. Maybe. Uh, we all try to do something, don't we, with our fear. Uh, some things we try are better than others. Uh, in this passage that we have before us this morning, we, we hear God speaking to his people, and he says to his people, he tells them not to be afraid. He's telling them what they can do with their fear. Uh, last week, when we looked at the first part of chapter 10, it was a, a heavy passage. Um, if you were here last week, well done for coming back this week. Um, uh, Isaiah, um, we're in the book of Isaiah, a man who lived in the 8th century Jerusalem, 8th century BC that is. Um, and he lived in these very challenging times and brings the messages of God to the people of Judah. Uh, we saw back in chapter 7 that, that these people who live in Jerusalem are terrified uh, they're terrified because of world events, world events that are getting very close to home. Uh, events, we're told, that are making their hearts shake like trees in a storm. Uh, Judah was under attack, and they, that they wanted to get help from the great nation Assyria. And the Lord said to them, that is a bad idea. Uh, however, by the time we get to our passage, it seems that they have gone ahead anyway, and that Assyria has come, and they have defeated Judah's enemies... But now they're heading with violent intent into the land of Judah. Uh, the section of Isaiah that we're in uh, works like this. We've seen this um, on a number of occasions. Uh, chapter 9 begins uh, with the promises of the coming righteous king, the light that shines in the darkness, uh, a child born for us, a son given to us, who will be a king like no other and will reign over a kingdom with no end. Uh, following that, there is a message of judgment on the pride of Israel, and then a message of judgment on the pride of Assyria. And then chapter 11 again speaks of the coming of the righteous king. Uh, today we find ourselves still in that section that speaks about Assyria's downfall. It's, it's concluding that message that will speak of the inevitable judgment that will come upon the pride of Assyria. But these um, messages of judgment that we have here are are wrapped up with these promises of the coming king. And, and wrapped up so much so that it's, 
It's as if that kind of abundant goodness that we saw at the beginning of chapter 9 is welling up into our passage. And what we will see in chapter 11 is overflowing back into what we have before us today. Uh, This passage, Isaiah 10, verse 20 to 34, comes in two parts. Uh, Verse 20 to 23 speaks about Israel. Verse 24 to 34 speaks to Judah. Uh, remember that the, the nation of God's people who were descended from Abraham, who were rescued from Egypt, was one nation called Israel. Uh, and they came to be under one king called David. Uh, not long after David, after his son Solomon, the nation was divided. And the northern part retains the name Israel, and the southern part was called Judah. Uh, and I, I say that because when we read through Isaiah... Uh, Sometimes the name Israel is referring idealistically to the whole nation. At other times it's just referring to the northern part. Verses 20 to 23 speaks about Israel. Probably it's the northern part, the, the, the part, the nation that has been attacking Judah and now itself has been attacked and overrun by Assyria. That Israel. But there's also a little bit of the Israel ide- idealistically here as well. Uh, let, let's have a look. So our first section, verse 20 to 23, uh, light bursts forth for Israel. Uh, someone said, uh, we as a species are addicted to story. Uh, we love stories. We tell stories about ourselves and uh, about the world and about other people. And the stories help us to make sense of who we are and, and what's going on. Uh, the Bible sees the whole of history as a great story. A great unfolding of God's purposes for everything. So so in verse 20 begins and says, in that day. It's it's, it's saying to us that in God's story there are days and times that are fixed. There are these great moments in the story that help to connect all of the parts. And there's a sense in verse 20. A sense of there is this day, there is this moment. And and, and there are going to be things that are going to happen and you need to know about them to make sense of your own story. It says, in that day, in that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. The great darkness has settled over Israel. They've been knocked flat, they are spiritually lost. But there's going to come a day. There will come a day when they will stop harming themselves with empty helps. But they've been relying on the one who attacks them. Like, like um, uh, kind of falling over and grasping at a fence only to find the fence is electric, electrified. Um, so you go down anyway, you're just more frazzled than when you started. And like um, C.S. Lewis's lists of things that get rid of our fears. And none of these things will really help. In the end, they're just going to make it worse. And the world is full of things like this, these empty helps, temporary fixes, distractions. But verse 20 to 21 says, there will come a day, there will come this day when when Israel realizes the bankruptcy of leaning on things that harm them. And they will turn to the Lord. The remnant will return. It says they will truly rely on the Lord. A spiritual awakening will come over them. There'll be a, a great rising of faith among them, and they will trust the Lord. Uh, Isaiah has two sons. 
Uh, we've, we've met them both already. Uh, the oldest one we met in chapter 7, and his name is Shir Jashub. Uh, and his name is a promise. His name means a remnant will return. His name means the dark days are not where the story will end. His name means that the people who were lost and have run away from God and pushed God out of their lives, that this people will be found. Now, why will the story go that way? Now, that's the question that matters for Judah as they listen in on this message about Israel. I think we'll see it's the question that matters for us also. Now, what is it which plots the course of history toward the moment of restoration? Why is it that the remnant will return? And what does that matter for our stories? Well, we need to go very carefully through verses 22 and 23. Just bear with me on this. Look at the first part of verse 22. This is what our NIV translates it as. Though your people... Be like the sand by the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Uh, but the words though and only are, are put in to help understand how the parts relate to each other. Uh, the, the grammatical uh, uh, construction there is a conditional clause. And if this, then this construction. Sometimes it can work like the NIV does, a kind of even though this, despite this, this will happen. But that's not the most usual way of translating it. The usual way is that the second part depends upon the condition of the first. Uh, a, a guy called Alec Motir is a, a wonderful commentator on the Old Testament, especially on the book of Isaiah, and he explains it this way, and I'm going to follow his explanation here. And I think it's better we translate this part of the verse like this. Since your people will be like the sand of the sea, Israel, then a remnant will return. You see that the people of Israel will be like the sand of the sea is a very ancient promise. A promise, really, that makes the backbone of the story of all history. See, right in the beginning, after the world fell apart and sin entered the world and the darkness of death cast its long shadow over every generation, into that darkness there was light. God called a man called Abraham. Read about it in Genesis 12. And God said to Abraham, promised Abraham, he said, I will bless you. And your family. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This was massive. Massive because all the blessing that got lost in the darkness of sin will not be lost forever. Now God is going to bring his blessing to the world again. He's going to do it through Abraham's family. The problem was that Abraham didn't have a family. And he got older and the years went on and the promise started to grow dim. And so God said to him again, spoke to him again in Genesis 15, your family will be so vast like the stars of the heavens. And the time goes on. Eventually, Abraham has a son called Isaac. And God says to Abraham, I want you to give me Isaac. I want you to sacrifice your son. And, and Abraham knows the promise must go through Isaac. The family is going to grow through Isaac's descendants, but he doesn't know how it's all going to fit together, and yet he trusts the Lord. And in the moment, uh, the critical moment, God provided a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket uh, to stand in the place of Isaac on the altar. And then God speaks again. You read it in Genesis 22. He says again to Abraham, I will bless you. Again, he says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your family line and your descendants will be so many like the stars of the heaven and like the sand on the seashore. And that promise, it drives the story of history. 
that the world is dark, but the light is coming. God has promised through Abraham's descendants, all nations will be blessed. And then we come to Isaiah 10. And here we find Abraham's descendants, this nation of Israel, who have plunged themselves further and further into darkness, pushing themselves, pushing God further and further away from them. And the darkness has become so thick and the nation is crumbling and they've been given over to others. They've been swallowed by a great empire. But the promise of the Lord in verse 22 is the remnant will return. This nation, it cannot be totally lost because God made a promise. A God promised that the family of Abraham will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And so a remnant must return. They must return to the mighty God. They must stop trusting on those empty helps and in true faith trust the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Verse 22 goes on into verse 23 as well. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, will carry out the destruction decreed upon the whole land. But here again, that, that word translated destruction literally means a completion. It's the same word in verse 25 that's translated as end. But so again, following Alan Motir on this, that better, better is to translate it as a completion or as a finished work has been decreed. That the Lord is going to carry out a completion. The Lord will carry out a finished work upon the whole land or the whole earth. It's telling us, I think, that God has determined in an unchangeably fixed way to bring to completion his purposes. That is, that when God promised that Abraham's descendants would be uncountable like the sand of the sea, he didn't have his fingers crossed. And he wasn't messing around. And there were no take-backs in his promises. He has determined and decreed it and so he will complete it and there's not the smallest part of the promise that will not come to pass now that ancient promise of a great family a massive multitude enjoying the blessings of God it's not it's not like the promise that I made to my sister when we were younger when I promised to give her five pounds if she ate a spoon of English mustard which she did and I gave her five pounds I gave her five pounds in weight of sand, not five pounds of money, which I thought was very clever. Um, she thought I was an idiot. Um, God's promises are not like that. They're not things that kind of sound good, but in reality, they're disappointing. God's promises work the other way around. God's promises sound good, but then the reality is abundantly better than we could have understood when the promise was given. So when Isaiah 9 tells of the coming king who will sit on David's throne. This king is no less than that promised offspring of Abraham through whom God will unleash heaven's blessings to all the nations. That's why Isaiah 9 says that this king will bring in constant increasing peace. He will establish the kingdom, it says, with justice and righteousness. All those blessings of the original creation with humanity flourishing at the top of our game, in selfless serving, delighted in investing in the happiness of everybody else, that ancient promise has, has grown and grown and grown. God will not only do what he says, but he's going to do it with bells and whistles. And so back in verse 22 and 23, the completed work that God has determined unwaveringly to accomplish and, and to do it on all the earth. The NIV has that phrase, overwhelming and righteous. But the word and isn't there. In fact, 
Righteous is the object of the verb to be overwhelming. And that's how the English Standard Version translates it. Because the question is, what is it that's going to be overwhelming? What is it? And the sense of the word is something that is going to kind of overwhelm and flood and fill everything. What is going to wash over the whole earth? The answer is, it is righteousness. And the same righteousness we last heard of in chapter 9, verse 6. The righteousness that the coming king will bring when he establishes his rule over all the earth. I um, admit this is difficult, maybe perhaps what I'm doing with the verses here. Um, and I'm very happy for you to completely dismiss everything I've just said and just stick with what the NIV says in front of you. But the point, however you take the translation, the point is the remnant will return. It's told us that repeatedly and that the remnant will return is good news. I think this verse shows why it is such good news, but it is such good news. Uh, These verses here, verses 20 to 23, are showing light that will burst forth for Israel. When it looks like it is all lost for Israel, when it looks like the darkness wins and swallows up all the hope, light will burst forth because God has made promises that he will keep. It's God's promises that drive the story of history. It's God's promises that help us to see the way that things are going and to understand our own stories. God has promised Because God has promised a remnant will return. However small and tiny that remnant may be. However few there may be in that number. uh, There must be a remnant because God has promised that through this nation would come blessings to all other nations. In fact, do do you know how small the remnant could be for the promises of God to stand? Uh, The remnant need be only one. Just one. Even a minute embryo in the womb of a virgin. The remnant need only be one. One child born into Bethlehem's poverty. Just one. A remnant of one. One child born. One son given. And all the promises through all the ages. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in that one child. That's God's great plan. Great plan that heaven's blessings will be brought to earth in this child. And through him, the blessings would go to all the nations of the earth. Through him would be gathered that multitude that no one can count into that one great family, enjoying the everlasting blessings of God in the world to come. You see, in in, in verse 21, it says, the remnant will return. Do you see who they will return to? It says, they will return To the mighty God. And when Isaiah 9 tells us of the child born, the son given, it says he will have a list of names. And among that list of names given to the child, one of them is this name. Mighty God. How can a sinful and fallen nation return to the Holy One of Israel? Well, they can return to him when he comes to them in the person of Jesus Christ. The remnant of one. Jesus Christ, through whom all nations will be saved, as they turn to him and become one with him, trusting Jesus Christ. And the one becomes many who are all one in him. So what? So what? We'll see how verse 24 begins. Therefore, 
When verse 20 to 23 speak about Israel, verse 24 to 34 speaks to Judah. Therefore, Judah, you don't need to be afraid. Now, what what is the takeaway for Judah as they listen to this message about Israel? That's what we're being led into in verse 24. Therefore, the implication of this, it says, do not be afraid of the Assyrians. Uh, At the end of last year, I'm sure you all watched a Christmas miracle happen on the show this morning. Um, I'll remind you of it, just in case your memories aren't quite tuned in. Live on TV, a lady called Kirsten Shepherd um, was cured of a phobia of Brussels sprouts. Um, This is a real phobia. Maybe you identify with this. If if this is a trigger thing for you, please speak to us afterwards. We'll try and help. Um, the, The fear of seeing a Brussels sprout, she would shake physically shake as she saw a Brussels sprout. And there were some therapists there who who helped her. She dug into her past. She worked out where it came from and was able to overcome her fear. Uh, Because whether you you love them or hate them, you don't need to have a crippling fear of them. Now, now lots of fears are dealt with. with. Like that, you, you work out you're not actually in danger. So you don't need to be afraid. And that can be very complex to work it out, but that's the basic dynamic of a lot of therapy. I'm, I'm scared of this thing that isn't really threatening, and, and understanding that will help me to overcome it. It's a whole different thing if you were standing on an aeroplane flying at 30,000 feet, about to be pushed out without a parachute. If someone says, you don't need to fear, they're wrong, because it's going to hurt. It's not the falling that will hurt you, it's the landing, isn't it? Um, Some things are really threatening and they are really dangerous and fear is entirely appropriate. What is Assyria to Judah? At this moment, Assyria is an efficient machine of destruction operating a reign of unrestrained terror over the known world and the armies of Assyria have entered Judah. They are already over the borders. There is blood on the streets. Verse 24 says, The Assyrians beat you with a rod. This is a terrifying situation. And and in that terrifying situation, the Lord says, do not be afraid of the Assyrians. He's not saying because they're a plate of Brussels sprouts. They can't actually harm you. He's not saying that. The Lord isn't telling them off. The Lord is recognizing there are huge and real reasons to be afraid. But there's also something else. There is a bigger story. And in these verses, Judah are reminded of what God has done in the past. Verse 24 says, like like Egypt did. Because Assyria is not the first oppressor this nation has known. Long ago, their ancestors were cruelly oppressed by the Egyptians, beaten with a club. And what happened to Egypt? Well, the Lord rescued his people and destroyed their abusers. And, And then verse 26 mentions Midian. And again, long ago, the ancestors of these people were cruelly oppressed by the Midianites. And what happened to Midian? The Lord rescued his people and destroyed their abuses. God has history here. He has a a history of coming to the aid of his weak and helpless people. The Lord has a history of when that moment, when everything seems lost and the darkness seems to swallow forever, shining the light. God's going to keep doing it. Now, verse 26 is saying that what the Lord did to Midian and to Egypt when they crushed you under their feet and then the Lord rescued you, he's going to do it again, and this time to Assyria. Verses 28 to 32 imagines the invasion of Assyria. 
the, the places plot a route closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. You've got to have the kind of Jaws theme playing in the background here, growing in intensity as the monster comes closer and closer to its prey. And the Assyrian army says in verse 32, they're going to get so close to the city, they will shake their fist. You will see them. And in the city, those will look and they will tremble. It will seem like all hope is lost with the mighty Assyrian army on the edge of the city. But then verse 33 says, the Lord will chop them down. However high and mighty they think they are, like trees of a great forest, the Lord will swing his axe and all the oppressors will fall before the mighty one. So people of Judah, suffocating in your darkness and danger all around, the Lord says, you don't need to fear these terrible things. You don't need to fear these terrible things because, well, well, Assyria is not the main threat. Assyria is not the main story. Verse 24 begins, therefore this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says. Listen to what the Lord Almighty says. The one possessed with all the authority and all the power. Listen to what he says. Assyria doesn't define history. It doesn't need to define yours. They do not write the story. The Lord Almighty writes the story. At that um, rod and club in verse 24 describing the Assyrian invasion is the same rod and club we heard back in verse 4 of the chapter, describing God's anger against the great sins of Judah. The Assyrians are not the real danger. The threat behind them is the Lord himself. And therein lies the comfort. The Lord isn't like the Assyrians. The Lord is the God of all justice who will punish all sin, and he is the God of all mercy who will forgive all who turn to him. Verse 25 says, very soon, the Lord says, very soon, my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. But his anger can only end, for for the anger of a holy God, it can only end when justice has been satisfied. And how will that be? Well, verse 27 says, in that day, their burden will be lifted from your shoulders, their yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because you've grown so fat. Precisely what was promised back in chapter 9, verse 4. Back in chapter 9, verse 4, the promise is that the Lord will shatter the yoke that burdens, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. The bar and the rod of the Lord's own anger at their sin will only be removed when the Lord himself shatters it. And how will that be? Again, chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now behind the Assyrian invasion is the anger of God against Judah's sin. And behind that is God's promise to remove the anger. For his anger against them to end because he will come himself in the person of his son. And he will be born into our humanity. He will be the offspring of Abraham. He will be the one remnant upon whom the rod was smashed for us. Under whom all oppressors will be crushed. Through whom every enemy of peace and happiness will be destroyed. And what the Lord did to Egypt. And what the Lord did to Midian. And what he's going to do to Assyria. He will finally do to all the dark powers of this world. Even to sin. Even to the great last enemy. Death itself. 
all will be thrown down through the dying and the rising of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God made a promise. And he will not fail to keep his promises to the end. So Judah, hear about the light that will burst forth for Israel. God has made a promise. The remnant will return and he will not fail in his promises. And so for Judah, when you hear the armies of Assyria and your heart shakes in terror in the face of a real and present danger, in that moment your God says to you, you don't need to be afraid. Yes, it's terrifying. But you don't need to fear it. You don't need to fear it, says God, because I have written the story and the ending is gloriously bright. And you can have a part in that ending. Your story can be written into this great story. You too can return to the Lord. Stop relying on the empty hopes and rely in truth on the Lord God Almighty. You too can return to the mighty God and become one with the one in whom every promise is yes and amen. The son who is coming to be king forever. And then what for us here this morning? There's always something to be afraid of, isn't there? Uh, Bill Withers sang the song, Lean on Me. Good song, isn't it? Lean on me when you're not strong. I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. Lean on me. Uh, I think in all of our fears, we can hear that song being sung around us in many ways. And it can be soft and seductive. You're afraid? Well, lean on me. Look for comfort in me, like as C.S. Lewis said. Ignorance, alcohol, passions, presumptions and stupidity, they're all singing, lean on me. In, in your fears, lean on me. Just, just put on another box set and distract yourself from everything else. In your fears, lean on me. Another trip to the fridge, another glass of wine. A, a holiday or a relationship or the, the plan we make to sort ourselves out and to dig deep, all singing seductively. Just lean on me. Now, all the good things, the good things, but, but when we lean on them, instead of leaning on the Lord God Almighty, those things will fail us. The line in the hymn that says, when other helps and comforts flee, and they will all flee, sooner or later they will all flee, we will lean on them and eventually they will snap and we will fall. But the Lord Almighty, he will never snap. And we can lean on him forever and ever. So in our own fears, the Lord doesn't berate us for being afraid. The world is a dangerous place. Our own hearts is a dangerous place. But God has written the story of history. And he's lined his promises along the way and he doesn't fail in his promises. And when we attach our lives to the promise, we can find our stories written into his great story. In fact, the call to return to the Lord comes to us today in the mouth of the Lord Jesus, whose message is, repent and believe the good news. Attach yourself to the promise. Lean on the Lord Almighty. Stop relying on empty hopes, because you too can return to the mighty God. You too can, can become one with the one in whom every promise is yes and amen, with the Son who has come and who has died for your sins and has been raised again and now lives to intercede for you. The king forever who is waiting now to return and bring in the fullness of his reign of peace in all the world. When our fears press in, the Lord knows. He's not cross when we're afraid. 
tells us again and again, repeatedly throughout the Bible, the most common command in the Bible is you don't need to be afraid. And you remember how the Lord deals with oppressors, what he did to Egypt and Midian and to Assyria, and ultimately with your sin and with death and with the devil himself at the cross of Calvary. Remember what he did. Remember what he has promised. He never fails in his promises. So yes, today what we're facing may be terrifying. But we don't need to fear it. Because the Lord, your God, has written the whole story. And the ending is gloriously glorious. He asks us to lean on him. I'll just take a moment just to reflect on that personally. The Lord inviting you this morning to lean on him. And then we'll sing. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you, Father, that he is all of your promises, all of your promises answered and fulfilled in him. Please would you teach each of us to lean on him every day. Amen. Are we going to sing? Are we going to sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? This is great, isn't it? Um, God and sinners reconciled. Uh, in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when the musicians are ready, let's stand and sing together.